You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Yes, good morning again. I'm excited to introduce Pastor Marty as our preacher this morning. If you've been around Mill Creek very long, you know we're real serious about preaching the Bible. But something you may not know is how many on our staff team participate to support the preaching ministries. We have meetings where we're looking into the exegesis of the text and meetings where we do feedback when somebody preaches and Marty's invested countless hours behind the scenes in those meetings for years. Special thank you to Marty. But another reason I'm really grateful for Pastor Marty is that whenever our staff team finds ourselves in a position that we're not expecting, like something's on fire and we don't know who's going to go put it out, Pastor Marty is always quick to say, I'll do it, and then he does it really well. He's like the best 911 quick responder our church has, and we're so grateful for the ways that he jumps in. Case in point is the sermon this morning. See, my family and I got hit with COVID about a month ago, and while the physical symptoms passed quickly for me, two days, um, it was the emotional uh, crash that I felt for like two or three days that I've never experienced before, quite like that. And maybe it was COVID blues, I don't know if that's really a thing or not. Or maybe it was sinfully trying to be Superman, which I'm really bad at with kids at home on Zoom calls with school and trying to navigate the pressures of work and preaching and Vision Sunday was coming up. Whatever it was, I found myself just totally shot. And uh, some of the staff helped me realize, hey, buddy, you've got to give something away. And it should not be your children. So I kept the kids... I gave away a sermon, and here is Pastor Marty jumping in. We like to have three or six months notice, and he jumped in in just a couple weeks and has done a great job. So special thank you to all the team. Um, And for those of you who struggle with emotional issues, I have a more sensitivity toward you having walked through some of that. Thank you, Lord. I feel 100% today, but thanks for Marty, who, because he took over this sermon that needed to be written a couple weeks ago, I'm able to be up here 100%. So thanks, Pastor Marty. Well, with that, allow me to read a portion of the preaching text today. It's Genesis 17, verses 15 to 21, page 8, if you need a Bible in our chair backs. Here's the text. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. 
As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Will you pray with me, please? Now, Lord, would you give grace as Pastor Marty comes to preach. And I pray, Spirit, you would give him great insight in this preaching moment to bring the word to us, your people. Give us soft hearts. Give us sharp minds. And I pray that this preaching would point our hearts to Christ. You would make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jer. It's a, it's a privilege and a joy uh, to be preaching this morning, and particularly this passage. I don't know about you, but sometimes I see those internet memes or videos that just blow my mind. Perhaps you've seen one that goes along this line. It usually opens with this line, you've been doing it wrong. You've been doing it wrong. In fact, when I'm bored, I just have to confess, sometimes I go to YouTube and there's actually a whole series of how-to videos that begin with, you've been doing it wrong. And for some reason, food seems to be a major topic, which is kind of odd, because all of us are here this morning and I'm assuming you ate food sometime in the last 24 hours, right? That's like one thing we're always pretty good at. But a couple of uh, recent videos caught my attention. For instance, peeling a banana. You know, most of us just pick that thing up, we start right at the stem and peel that thing down. Wrong. Instead, turn it upside down, grab the bottom, pinch that little black tip of the banana and peel, and it comes right down with no stringy peel remnants that are gross. You're welcome for that tip. What about cracking eggs for breakfast? You know, I, for years, just took those things, beat them right against the edge of the pan, and then was slightly upset at all the little shell fragments that make their way into the egg. Don't do that. Instead, just a light tap on the countertop and some slight pressure with your thumb. And when I watch this video, is like some kind of black magic. I mean, just and the egg releases, cracks right open, no shell fragments. That, for me, is personally life-changing. Today, we're going to look at an episode in Abram's life where we see he's been doing it wrong. Yes, he believed God, but he acted on what God promised in a way that was all wrong. So there's a simple roadmap to what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to see the end of God's plan, Abram's way, and the beginning of God's plan, God's way. We've been working our way through Genesis and seeing how it shows us God always keeps his promises. And we've been focusing since the first of the year on the promise God made to Abram. Starting with chapter 12, there's a call for him to leave his home in a city called Ur, and a promise that God gave that he would make him great and a blessing to others and give him a land. And at that time, Abram brought Lot, his nephew, around as sort of a backup plan to this whole idea. 
Later, in Genesis 14, God promises that the very land that Abraham could see all around him would belong to his innumerable descendants. In chapter 15, God gives even more clarity to Abram, who was concerned that he had no children and that his estate was going to go to his servant Eleazar. God told him specifically that a son of Abram himself would inherit the promise. Then last week we were in chapter 16, which is sort of a really bad turning point in the story. Abram and Sarai decide that God's plan must need a little help from them somehow. So Sarai gives Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, to Abram as a second wife, and with her, Abram conceives a son, Ishmael. The whole story was super messy, full of pain, full of sin, but we'll find this morning for 13 years they are left kind of to assume that this is going to be the solution. But now in Genesis 17, and we'll start at verse 1, God is going to reveal to Abraham that that little help was not God's plan and was actually a problem. There was going to be another more incredible reality to the promise that Abraham must believe and obey. If you have your Bibles, and like Jeremy says, I too hope that you do, open them to Genesis 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat back in front of you. And let's look, starting in verse 1, at the end of God's plan, Abram's way. Here's what the text says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You see, there's something very interesting happening here in verse 1. In fact, if you just look to the verse in front of it, the last verse of chapter 16, you will notice that at that point, Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael is born. And then the very next verse has a lapse of 13 years. Abram's 99 when God appears to him again. And something totally new happens here. In fact, one of the themes of chapter 17 is the way God will do his plan in new ways. And if you're taking notes, under that first point, you can make just a little T chart. And on one side, you can put new names because God's going to reveal some new names. And then on the other side of that chart, you can put new parts because God's going to reveal new parts to his covenant with Abram. So the first new name that we are introduced to in this passage is a name for God himself. It says, the Lord came and said, I am God Almighty. That is the Hebrew word or Hebrew name, El Shaddai. And God appears with a new name showing up thir after 13 years of relative silence. And he reveals himself to Abram in a new way with a new name. His first words, I am God Almighty. 
You see, in all the other encounters that God had with Abram, his declared name was the Lord. We know that as Yahweh, or in the old King James, Jehovah. That is the name of God that distinguishes him uniquely as creator, as God of the universe, the only God. This time around, though, God comes to Abram with a new name, a name never used before in Genesis. It is the first time in the Bible we hear God call himself God Almighty, El Shaddai. It is a name of impossibly intense power. It is a name that God will keep using throughout the Old Testament to emphasize his power to keep his promises, particularly across generations of time. Now, I need to confess a problem I have had to come to grips with when contemplating the significance of God revealing himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. You see, back in the early 90s, there was a contemporary Christian song written by Michael Card, sung by Amy Grant. If I start singing it right now, many of you will join in. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Yona Adonai. Age to age, you're still the same. Come on, by the power of the name. Oh, what a sweet little song. It's soft, it's folksy, it's almost a lullaby. Only problem is, God's power doesn't lull us into sleep. God's power showing up at this point in Abram's life was meant to unsettle him. God wants to shake us up because the God who does the impossible confronts what we cannot do and changes everything. So, Rather than a folksy little lullaby, maybe El Shaddai needs a theme song more like, I don't know, Robert Duvall's airborne cavalry scene in Apocalypse Now, where choppers rain down napalm and gunship fire on the enemy while Wagner's Flight of the Valkyries thunders in the background. Ricky, could you get working on a new anthem for El Shaddai, please? We need a strong way to see this strong God. Abram was going to get his comfortable world rocked by an almighty God who was going to do what seemed impossible. In verse 3, when God Almighty shows up and reminds Abram of his covenant promise, Abram falls down in worship. God begins with a reminder. The text says this, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. God reiterates that he's doing something with Abram exclusively. Abram has a new covenant with God that nobody else has. But then God goes on to give a second new name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made of you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, 
for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So Abram's got a new name, and it is Abraham. What's up with that new name? Is it really a new name? I mean, we add a syllable to it in English, and it's a name that the guy has had for almost a full century. Why would God change his name? Well, Abram means exalted father. And as something new starts to happen, Abram is going to learn that the almighty God, El Shaddai, is a lot bigger than he is. God is going to be the exalted one. Abraham has a different meaning. Abraham's new name is going to reveal his connection to the covenant, his personal connection. Abraham means father of a multitude. So his name meaning is going from exalted father to father of a multitude. So now, every time Abraham hears his name, he is going to be reminded that God has promised that not just one, but many nations would come from his offspring. The new name is God's way of helping Abraham focus on God doing something in him and with him. So we've seen two new names. Let's look further and begin to see what new part of God's covenant is going to be revealed to Abraham. Look at verses 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So now on the right-hand side, you can write the covenant's new sign, circumcision. Wow, okay. Everybody just take a deep breath. Let's just acknowledge the total uncomfortability we have with a subject like this on a Sunday morning in a family service. Some of y'all came here to watch babies dedicated and we're talking about circumcision. I get it. Um, Sorry, but not sorry. Our desire is to preach through the text and we're at a point in the text where this is happening. So just let me make it easy. We're going to put some pictures from the illustrated guide to biblical circumcision on the screen so you can get all your questions answered. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm purposely not going to be graphic, but listen, folks, we better get comfortable that God chose this sign to give to Abraham and by extension his people Israel because from here on out through all of Scripture, this is a big deal. I mean, all the way through, circumcision is going to be talked about. So kids, just feel free to ask dad and mom later this afternoon what it means. For now, let's just realize this. Circumcision is a minor surgical procedure only for men that God established here with Abraham as the distinguishing act of obedience to his covenant with Abraham and his descendants for all generations. It would serve as a sign of obedience and submission to God, to God Almighty's promises. God calls it a sign in verse 11. It is how God knew Abraham and his descendants were committed to him. And what it means for us today is that God expects those who are the recipients of his promise to commit to him while believing those promises. 
It is why in New Testament times we're reminded both to hear the word of God and to do it. It is why faith in Christ is exhibited both in personal belief and in obedience to be baptized as Jesus commanded. There's a lot more we can say here, but my guess is you'll be pretty happy that I move on from the subject of circumcision. Circumcision. So you see this new sign of the covenant that God showed God's people this, they would be willing to obey God. But it also came with a warning. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is a second new part to the covenant, and that is that this covenant has a new warning, and the new warning is if, if you don't obey it, you don't be, you're no longer part of the covenant. You're cut off from the covenant. God is very serious here. If somewhere down, somewhere down the line someone feels like, man, that, that circumcision thing, I, I am not doing that. No way. Well, the consequence was even if they were genetically or ethnically part of Israel, spiritually they were not. They were cut off. They were removed from all the blessings of the covenant. They were not part of the promise. They were not part of God's people. This makes the blessings of the covenant in some sense now also conditioned on obedience to keep the sign of the covenant. It's the first time in the covenant that a an act of obedience is required. So this covenant has a new sign and a new warning. Let's go on to see that God isn't quite done with new names here. Look at verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will Bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So Sarai's new name is Sarah. And again, from our point of view, this seems pretty minor. It's just like a new pronunciation. What is going on with Sarah's new name is actually very culture-shaking. Sarai. Her old name means my princess. God, in essence, by changing the pronunciation of her name, took away the possessive element to her name and simply shortened her name to princess. This did two things. First of all, it made it clear that Sarah did not belong to anybody. She was God's. You see, Abraham had a bad habit of treating his wife like property that he could negotiate with. Remember that nasty moment with Pharaoh in Egypt in Genesis 12 where Abram basically pimped his wife out to the king to save his own neck? Yeah, yeah, that was bad. Abraham still had some growth to do in that area, but God has made it clear to Abraham that he could not think of Sarah as my princess any longer. Instead, she was going to be an equal instrument of God's and also equal inheritor of the promise to be the mother of many nations. This is unheard of at the time. 
For Sarah, this is a liberating name change. And ladies, here's a clear reminder that the unorthodox criticism that Scripture just wants to shackle women is totally incorrect. It is totally dishonoring to God to diminish the image of God in women. Sarah is a princess, a queen to many nations in God's eyes and in God's plan. Now, married guys, what a reminder for us that God has great plans for our wives to bless many, and we should not and cannot limit them through possessiveness, through put-downs, or thinking their roles in our homes or in our lives are less significant. Could I get an amen from some of you men, please? Because your wives are already thinking it. After establishing Sarah's role in his plan, God goes on to work on Abraham and correct a huge misunderstanding and increase his faith. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I shall... I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father to twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Look what happens here. As soon as God clearly explains that Sarah will bear the covenant child, Abraham cannot help himself. He falls down and laughs like, God, that's a really good one. Really, look, I'm almost a century old. Sarah, well, she ain't no spring chicken, man. I mean, she still has charm and looks, but dude, she's 90. This just isn't going to happen. Then Abraham circles back to his current plan B. God, I've, I've got this teenage son, Ishmael. He's nearly a man now. I'm seeing a way through all of this in him. Come on, let this be the son of your covenant promises, please. That's so much easier for me to believe. God's answer is immediate. No. God's answer is filled with new information. There's a new son coming. God even names him Isaac, who will, like Abraham now, inherit fully the covenant in every detail. Thus, we have a third new part of the covenant, new clarity. There's a new son, Isaac, born through Sarah within the year. This begins God's plan, God's way. 
We've seen God reveal himself in a new name, El Shaddai. We've seen Abraham, Abram change to Abraham. We've seen Sarai change to Sarah. We've seen the covenant get a new sign, circumcision, a new warning that it must be obeyed, and a new clarity that a new son would come through Sarah in one year. And as we begin in verse 22, we begin to see what it looks like for God's plan to be done God's way. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. What does Abraham now do? His personal plan for 13 years has been thoroughly dismantled. The napalm dropped. It burned up any hope of Ishmael being the covenant son. God Almighty has promised now what seems totally impossible. What? is Abraham's next step. His next step in verse 23 is complete obedience. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. I want you to notice several things about Abraham's obedience. First, Abraham's obedience is complete. It is complete. Verse 23, every male. If you remember in Genesis 14, when Abram went out with his elite commando fighting force that was made up of all his household staff, and he took on the five different armies, we're told in the text that there were 318 adult males that were more than 13 and that was more than 13 years earlier. So let's say that his estate did not grow any larger, but he also didn't lose anybody. When the circumcision knives got sharpened, there was a small village to commit to obedience. Counting Abram and Ishmael, that means 320 males. Notice the text also said he did as God had said. Abram is quick to realize that God's standard is the standard of obedience. So as Abraham's obedience is complete, it is also difficult. It is difficult. The equivalent of an entire village circumcised in one day. Also, I think it's significant that the text gives two ages as reminders. It reminds us that Abraham is 99 when he does this, and Ishmael is 13 when this happens. Now think about it. Those seem to be two of the most challenging ages to convince to do this kind of radical obedience. I mean, if you told me, hey, Marty, your job, I know you're the fireman, I know you can run in and do anything, but your job is to convince a 99-year-old man and a 13-year-old teenager to get circumcised, I'm going to pass. That is a hard job. But Abraham's obedience moved beyond this difficulty. Third, Abraham's obedience is immediate. It says he did did it that very day. He did not wait. He didn't consult with a team of physicians. He just went to the task, and by the end of the day, every man in Abraham's household had committed to God's sign of the covenant in order to live in this new clarity under God Almighty. 
It is immediate, and then finally, his obedience is detailed. It's interesting to me that there is a one-on-one correspondence between Abraham's actions in verses 26 and 27, and then God's commands in verses 12 and 13. It's like Abraham was taking very careful notes, and he, he created this bullet list to make sure he obeyed it fully. In 26, it says, all the men. Verse 27, born in his house. Verse 27, bought with his money, were circumcised. And all four of those points were told specifically by him, uh, to him by God to do in verses 12 and 13. Abraham did not skimp on carefully and fully obeying God's word in every detail that God gave. It is clear that Abraham had accepted the new names and the new clarity God has brought to him. He's ready to see just how this impossible thing is going to happen And there's a deadline for it, one year. Now, lest you think Abraham was never to sin again, let me be clear. The next couple of sermons will show us a man who believes God, but still messes it up, even in some of the same old ways. So what can we take away from Abraham in this story? Well, he had tried to do God's plan his way with Hagar and Ishmael. God had to correct him. And Abraham committed to the sign of the covenant by obeying the command of circumcision. So what was circumcision leading to? You see, it isn't just about the physical act of circumcision. It's about the willingness to obey God at a personal cost. And we don't successfully negotiate that sort of thing. Didn't work for Abraham. It is best to simply and immediately obey Abraham began this massive obedience to live with the sign of God's covenant relationship with his people immediately. This would become the standard for Israel moving forward. The Israelites waiting to cross over into Canaan, who would have first heard this story in Genesis of Abraham's very first commitment to the sign of the covenant, they would have realized this. They had been obeying the command to circumcise their baby boys for centuries. Every parent would choose to obey God with every baby boy at eight days of age in the hope that they too could enjoy the blessings of God's promise. This would continue after Israel moved into the promised land. It would continue through their kingdoms, through their divided kingdoms, through their exile, all the way to the day that a Jewish couple from Bethlehem would continue in unwavering obedience to do what Father Abraham started. You see, in Luke 2, 21, we're given this information about Jesus after his birth. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And after Jesus was circumcised, his parents came to the temple for a special dedication of their baby boy. Think of it something like we've already seen in in our service this morning, except this was required by the law for them to do. And there in the temple, an infant Jesus and Mary and Joseph met another impossibly old man whom people may have thought reminded them a lot of Abraham. God had told this guy named Simeon that he would not die until he laid eyes on God's coming Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise For centuries, people had waited 
to deliver his people. And when Simeon saw baby Jesus, he blessed the Lord, and then God used him to add to the promise of what Jesus was going to do, not only for Israel, but for the world. He made this prophecy about Jesus. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your people, Israel. Yes, ultimately, God's covenant pointed to what would be fulfilled in Jesus. Abraham and Sarah would produce many nations. Israel would be a light to those nations until God would bring a savior to the world who would bring salvation to all of us. The sign of the covenant circumcision would ultimately be a part of our own salvation story as well. You see, remember in Abraham's story, for 13 years it appeared that God had been silent about Abraham's future. He assumed, messy though it was, Ishmael was going to be the only one to carry on what God had promised. But God broke through that silence with new names, new covenant details, and a new clarity. And before Jesus came, about 400 years elapsed between the time the last prophet in the Old Testament spoke and God broke through the silence with Jesus. And then a whole new clarity came forward, true salvation not only for Israel, but for the Gentiles, for the world, and for us. And just as Abraham began a chain of immediate obedience to circumcision that God used to bring a people of promise to himself, so now in Christ we are all called to obey the gospel. This means the proclamation of the good news of the gospel so that salvation in Jesus could come to all who believe. He calls us to be disciples who make disciples, with baptism being a big part of the physical call of obedience to that command. And that leads us to our sermon in a sentence, and that's this. A powerful God calls us to trust his promise, his way. A powerful God calls us to trust his promises, his way. Some applications. If you're here this morning and you think you're good enough to impress God, that you're trying to please God your way, I want to tell you it isn't going to work. You need to repent of trying to please God your way because everybody falls short. You see, it's going to be an Ishmael attempt on your part and it's not going to work. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Your only hope is to trust in the ultimate promise, Jesus alone. Because Romans 3.24 goes on to say we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So repent of trying to think you can please God your way. Secondly, commit to obeying God, God's way. You see, in all our areas of following Jesus, in our life of discipleship, believers have to biblically examine our motives and actions. Will we follow God his way and not our way? We can do that through clear scriptural command, gathered worship, mutual accountability and gospel community, prayerful dependence. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing a big decision. Do you just plow into it looking only at your perspective? Would it be worth seeing if God says something about where you're at in his word? Maybe seek the advice of other Christians. You see that Ishmael shortcut, just using the resources he had immediately at his disposal, that thing did not work for Abraham. In fact, it was wrong. 
Cutting corners is so easy to do outside of faith. Don't make seeking God the corner you cut. You say, yes, pastor, but I've been waiting for a long time. Welcome to the club. I think all of us have situations in our life where we feel like we're waiting on God for a long time. But do not fall for our fast food, instant credit culture. God is worth waiting for. He's always worth waiting for. Nobody says, I'm sorry I waited on God. You see, Abraham failed. He obeyed and he failed again. But Jesus always, always perfectly obeyed. And because Jesus obeyed, we no longer have to live with falling short of being able to please God. Jesus does it for us. We believe. We trust. We are forgiven. He is our righteousness, our salvation, our hope. In Jesus, we can follow God's plan, God's way. Would you pray with me? Lord, now we come to you and we realize we fall short. Forgive us of those times when we only rely on the physical resources we see around us rather than waiting for you to move in your way. Lord, if there are those here this morning who believe they will only get to heaven by pleasing you their own way, I pray, Jesus, would the gospel break through in their hearts. They'd see their need for a Savior, turn from sin, and trust the one who has obeyed and followed perfectly. Lord, we thank you for the story of Abraham. We pray that ultimately our trust would be in the Savior who Abraham's line would bring to us. In his name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.